We're trying to engineer a new dark age for our immune systems, try to retard the learning processes that render our immune systems capable of facing the new threats. Nearly four decades after investor George Gilder's book, Wealth and Poverty, helped shape the economic policies of Ronald Reagan, Gilder sits down with me to discuss his forthcoming book, Life After Capitalism. In the past, when you went public as a company, you gained new influence and power and new capital and freedom. Now when you go public, you get nationalized. We dive into environmental and pandemic policy and Gilder's information theory on economics. This information theory that's often applied to wireless transmissions actually also applies to our minds and bodies. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. George Gilder, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Great to be here. George, uh, you are, as you know, many people may remember, the author of an incredibly influential book. I guess it's almost forty years ago. It's hard, hard to, hard to believe. More than, more than forty. Well, more years, than forty years ago. Forty-five years ago. Wealth but, and poverty, of course, right. is the book, and significant in the sort of philosophy of uh, economic philosophy of Ronald Reagan, what's called the Reagan Revolution. Often. Yeah. Um, last night we were talking, and you offered a really fascinating view. You were talking about learning curves and you basically, you made a comparison of how um, learning in our lives is somehow parallel to the way our immune systems learn in our biological lives, which I thought was just an incredibly fascinating idea. I want to get you to expound on that a little bit for me. Well, I'm right uh, doing what's called the information theory of economics. I'm applying the information theory that Claude Shannon and John von Neumann and the Alan Turing, uh, the great figures of the computer revolution developed uh, to uh, enable these worldwide webs of glass and light that span the globe and allow us to communicate almost instantly everywhere around the world. And, and uh, that have created what we call an, an age of information and, and uh, established uh, four great information companies as the four uh, most highly valued companies on the face of the earth, Apple, Google, um, Microsoft, and Amazon. And I'm applying this theory, this information theory behind the computer, computer technology to economics. And uh, the key propositions that emerge is that information is surprise. It's unexpected bits. That's what Shannon, how Shannon defined it. If uh, everything I say today uh, you already understand, um, no information is being communicated. And that, and that principle that information is surprise is fundamental to the computer age. But many people in Silicon Valley are forgetting the foundations of their technology. They, they imagine that information is some determinist expertise, the science, you know, this, as, as if science 
can uh, predict the future. And, uh, but uh, by def the great insight of capitalism and of uh, free economies is to accommodate surprise, entrepreneurial surprise. Human creativity always comes as a surprise to us. If it didn't, we wouldn't need it. And socialism would work, planning would work. That's Albert Hirschman's great insight. So information theory, the three key propositions are beyond information itself is surprise, is that wealth is knowledge. We know that. That Neanderthal in his cave, as Thomas Sowell pointed out years ago, had all the physical resources we have today. All, all the difference between our age and the Stone Age is the growth of knowledge. But if wealth is knowledge, what is economic growth? It's learning. And this is evident from... Uh, all the great business consultancies from uh, Boston Consulting Group, Bain and & Company, and Accenture now, and all of them document learning curves, most fully established principle in uh, business strategy is that with every doubling of total units sold, costs drop between 20 and 30% in all fields, whether it's poultry eggs or microchip transistors or lines of software code or trucking miles, doesn't matter. The learning curve is absolutely essential. And then uh, the third principle, which is money is time. When everything else grows abundant, as I believe we live in a world of superabundance now, what remains scarce is time. Those hours and minutes we spend to earn the money to purchase goods and services. And that's the real foundation of value is time. And these are time prices, and I've, I've got a whole book about them. So, uh, but uh, this is a revolution in economics that I believe consummates the revolution that was initiated with wealth and poverty in the, in the Reagan years. It means that capitalism is not principally an incentive system. You know, all the economic models treat you and I as if we're in a Skinner box responding to uh, rewards and punishments, and uh, where it's homo economicus, mm -hmm. and homo economicus is not a man; it's a it's a mechanism, and uh, and mechanisms don't produce surprises unless they're breaking down. Uh, human minds produce surprises, and that, that's really the principle. Now, and Information theory began with a paper by Claude Shannon, his PhD thesis at uh, MIT, as few people know, was on genetics. He first applied informa this information theory that later animated the entire computer age. 
He first um, identified it in, in biology with DNA as a, and uh, programming ribosomes to produce proteins and, and transmitting information through our bodies and our systems. And our systems, like our economies, grow by learning. We have to learn how to do things. Uh, and uh, of course, there's a tremendous learning curve going on in an infant as it grows up and learns how to talk and walk and maneuver and, and ultimately uh, invent. And uh, this information theory that's, that's often applied to um, fiber optic lines or wireless transmissions actually also applies to our minds and bodies and, and, and interplay with other minds and bodies in a world economy. And you took this, you know, kind of a step further and basically focused specifically on the immune system as right. a learning right. system. Right. Right. And that's, that is uh, really important today because the real thesis of the dominant big, big media academic uh, system of the world that they're trying to impose on us is that uh, somehow uh, the Industrial Revolution, uh, the rise of energy production, uh, 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 globalization, urbanization, um, mass agriculture is all some kind of big mistake. And it produces ultimately pandemics and that we're too much involved with one another, that uh, we're uh, too um, urbanized, we're too creative, where creation has become uh, uh, stigmatized as pollution. Uh, and uh, our very uh, emissions of CO2 are uh, somehow depicted as a plague on the planet. The information theory really shows the opposite. Economic learning and growth and wealth and longevity, uh, both in economics and in biology, um, have steadily expanded. Uh, since the Industrial Revolution, our population has risen from 300 million to 8 billion last, more than 11 times. And uh, our longevity has risen from about 30 years to over 70 years globally. During this period, longevity has increased most, not in rural reaches where people are socially distanced all the time as a matter of course, but in cities. That's where the greatest uh, rises in uh, longevity have occurred. And South Korea has led the world in uh, increases in their longevity and uh, productivity and creativity over the last 
decades, and and they uh, they're the mo one of the most urbanized countries in, in the world. Most of the population is in Seoul and the environs, and there are a couple others, big, twenty million person cities. But it's the reason they've been such a spearhead of the world economy, growing as fast as any country in the world since uh, the 1960s after the Korean War, is, is that they're more urbanized and, and they have, uh, because people are all in cities, they all have cell phones, they're all communicating constantly with one another. Uh, social distancing doesn't do anything for, for us. It, as uh, Sunetra Gupta, one of the three authors, she's from Oxford University, an author of a book on pandemics written about 10 years ago. Uh, she's, she says that everything we're doing for COVID is wrong. We, we don't want to social distance. We want to teach our immune systems the nature of the viruses they face. Uh, when people were separated, when they came together, half the people died because, they, because the immune systems on each side didn't uh, know uh, when the Indi Indians, the native in the United States, uh, encountered Europeans. Many of them died of various uh, viruses. But today, because of globalization and urbanization, um, our uh, immune systems, all the uh, T cells and killer cells and B cells and that whole elaborate system that protects us and keeps us alive, that rarely encounters a completely unfamiliar virus. What Sinatra Gupta, this great Oxford expert on, on pandemics, uh, says she fears that we're trying to engineer a new dark age for our immune systems, try to retard the learning processes that render our immune systems capable of facing the new threats, the unexpected threats that uh, may arise in the future. So um, wealth is knowledge, growth is learning, money is time, uh, information is surprise, and those principles apply in biology, in cryptography, which is another great theory that, uh, that uh, Claude Shannon developed uh, his, uh, during the war. So his cryptography system was uh, suppressed, classified during the war. And so when they built the internet, they built it on his information theory without his foundation in cryptography. And that's what we're trying to restore today in a new global internet with a blockchain support and, uh, and a thus greater uh, security and identity and the benefits that uh, blockchain can confer when it's understood right and applied right. Before we continue, um, I just want to talk a little bit about how you got, you're actually a board member of the Brownstone Institute, and I guess, and you're actually, 
uh, from Great Barrington. I am. Right? Or, my <laughs> business is, is in Great Barrington. Right. So, you know, there's this, and of course, we're familiar, you're talking about Sunetra Gupta. Dr. Sunetra Gupta, of course, is one of the three signatories, original signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, which clearly is named after where you're from. So maybe explain to me the connection with all these factors here. Well, it's it's been quite uh, sort of providential and amazing to me that uh, I was one of the first people questioning the lockdowns and, and the whole sort of emergency socialism, emergency Marxism that the U.S. adopted in the face of the COVID threat. And from the beginning, it seemed amazing to me that uh, people were toting up deaths uh, but 80% but, uh, of the deaths or more were people over 65. And uh, they, with uh, deadly comorbidities already. As a matter of fact, uh, when they actually studied the data, they determined that only 6% of the deaths were not accompanied by deadly other comorbidities, comorbidities, other cancer, heart disease, awful obesity, diabetes, all these diseases um, were already killing the uh, most of the victims of COVID. In Italy, they found only 5% of the, of the deaths were not uh, accompanied by other comor comorbidities. And as soon as you know, realize that, you realize that this was mostly a trumped-up crisis. It was not real. Uh, the Spanish flu killed millions of young, young people around the world. And President Eisenhower, who had been through the Spanish flu in the knew enough in the 1950s not to close down the economy in order to, to fight uh, a new form of flu. Well, here we have a much milder disease, much milder than the Spanish, incomparably less serious than the, than the Spanish flu or the Asian flu of 57, 58. And we locked down the whole economy. We destroyed millions of small businesses. We uh, made people wear masks, mandated masks on airplanes, as if masks can fight off a, uh, it's just complete superstition. I mean, there is virtually zero evidence that the propagation of a flu like this that depends on the robustness of people's immune systems can be inhibited by making people wear masks. And this was evident to me from the beginning. So I began and I discovered that I had friends, I met all sorts of new friends, but, but my chief writer on my newsletter business, who writes that newsletter, John Schroeder, has written two books about uh, uh, attacking COVID policy. Uh, William Briggs, who was a brilliant uh, statistician from Cornell, has written a book with the Discovery Institute, and I co-founded Discovery. Where, and, and then I discovered in Great Barrington, Jeffrey Tucker was holding out. I hardly knew, Je I knew Jeff 
sort of, but I hardly knew him. And uh, the next thing I heard, the Great Barrington Declaration. So I went over, the, oh, I'm part of AIRs, which was the source of, of the sort of loosely held host of the Great Barrington Declaration. And, uh, and, uh, and I started discussing it with Jeffrey and I for, wrote a foreword for his book and, and uh, we were on our way to the Brownstone Institute, which has assembled all, just people from all around the country. Fast, every, everybody at uh, the conference dinner had a fascinating story about uh, various um, grassroots resistance to requiring little kids to wear masks and get vaccinated for something that doesn't affect kids. It's just a bizarre uh, episode of, of the madness of crowds. And it's sad to see it's virtually global. I mean, only a few countries like uh, Sweden have really resisted. Uh, and it was great to, it's great to be in Florida where uh, 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 Governor DeSantis and Ladapo is, is the chief doctor, his chief medical advisor, who's speaking to the Brownstone Institute and is held out against the mandates of, of um, vaccinations and masks for what's actually uh, just another flu. It's, it, it's just not comparable to the Spanish flu or, or uh, the Asian flu of the 50. We have fewer pandemics. The more we globalize, the more we urbanize, the more we interact with each other, the more our immune systems learn to deal with the threats and slings and arrows of a modern world. Sinetra Gupta, the uh, Oxford uh, epidemiologist, says we are all returning to our caves. We imagine that if uh, we uh, stop producing energy, we'll have to return to our caves because we, we, we certainly can't fuel a modern society with sunbeams and breezes, I'll tell you that. I mean, it's the stupidest idea in the history of, um, of technology almost. It, it, there's never been such a completely silly proposal as to go zero uh, CO2 by uh, 2035 or whatever these imbecilic governors are proposing. The mistakes we're making are so egregious that they could bring down the whole society. They could bring down the power grid, which is what sustains our lives. It's a real threat. All our gasoline is 10% ethanol, and this is supposedly designed to save the planet. But just this having 10% ethanol that gunks up our car motors and makes the gasoline less efficient and uh, clean. It takes 80% of all the footprint of all our energy in the world is consumed by producing corn to put in our cars.
oil well, you drill it in a particular place, and when it's full, you finished, you remove it. Uh, Cornfields, which are supplied by tractors and nitrogen fertilizers and just a huge supply chain to sustain the production of corn for uh, just putting 10% to gunk up our cars with 10% ethanol. It's the worst thing for the planet we do. And, and we're doing it in the name of, uh, of, of the environment. Of the environment. It's, right. We waste the environment in the name of the environment. It's, it's so, it, and, and we're, it's, it's unbelievable not to be too indignant, but it really is unbelievable. I, I'm 80 years, 83 years old, and uh, I haven't seen any policy as stupid as, uh, as ethanol in our cars, windmills spread out all over the place. All energy is free until you convert it into power that can actually move a motor or transmit a frequency or accomplish a purpose. Uh, the fact that wind and sun uh, hits everywhere on the earth does, is irrelevant. Uh, all it does is it means you gotta move the energy further, which means power lines all across the country, and then you gotta back it up because wind and sun are erratic. They aren't really sources of power at all. They, they, they have to be backed up. And, and so it means the grid becomes more complex and more subject to sabotage. And Putin has declared, believe it or not, that uh, he will wipe out our power grid if we involve ourselves more in the Ukraine. And it's actually, we're making it easier and easier to wipe out our power grid. It's a terrifying prospect. And as William Happer of uh, Princeton physicist, great Princeton physicist, and uh, Richard Lindzen of MIT, their chief uh, meteorology expert, both have declared there's a greater threat of having too little CO2 than too much. That if, if CO2 drops much more, uh, will actually threaten uh, agricultural production and, and all life forms on the planet, ultimately. Of course, we're not going to do that. But to hear people talk of CO2 as a poison when it's the chief source of all our food and, and uh, lifestyles and, and, and ability to sit here and, and discuss policy and propagate it across the world, through the Epoch Times is, uh, is completely dependent on CO2 with every step of the way. And uh, the idea of getting rid of CO2 is, you can't even laugh at it. It's so stupid. As you're discussing all this, the common theme that I'm seeing is kind of the power of ideology, okay? Or uh, the, 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 the power of ideas. For example, this idea of uh, you know total lockdown or, or or partial lockdown, you know we we believed and it seems like um, there's increasing evidence that we somehow either believed or chose to believe um, an idea that came out of communist China, 
yeah, which was it really did come out of Ch communist China. And so, okay, so what do you what do you make of that? I think that uh, the, there are too damn many communists in China. They actually have a propensity to believe that force can actually produce uh, good effects and can generate growth and progress. Marxists have been proven wrong over and over again. They're being proven wrong again as their people in China rebel on the streets and they're going to have to be shooting their people again, which is not a good sign of, uh, of successes in governance. Uh, I th China, however, is a much, is a, as you know better than I do, is a, a tremendously diverse and, and creative place. And there's tremendous enterprise going on in there, tremendous, uh, you know, they, they aren't studying genders gender science in their universities. They're producing engineers by the millions. Well, so, so since we're on this topic, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this, right? Um, you obviously are a proponent from what I heard, right, of, of globalization, of mixing both economically and uh, so forth. But it seems to me like the Chinese Communist Party has leveraged the globalism to its own benefit by benefiting from all sorts of open rules that the system has, but itself choosing not to follow them at all. And the world seemed to be you know, perfectly good with this. That's a good point. The only point I'll make is that uh, under Jiang Zemin and uh, Deng Xiaoping, and there is uh, China did open up massively. It's on the economic front, not on the political front, I acknowledge, but on the economic front, they massively opened up. And uh, because of their previous great episode of totalitarian excess, uh, the one-child policy, uh, they now are going to have uh, increasing, they're going to be the most rapidly aging society on the face of the earth. And so, uh, the, to the extent that China has been free, to the extent that it's favored technological creativity, entrepreneurial efflorescence, Alibaba in particular created the structure for online commerce, and which really was the structure for capitalist growth in China. They defined contracts and... and uh, and supply chains and, and all the uh, rules that uh, make a uh, capitalist system work in, within the uh, online domains of Alibaba, and that's been central to their success. And Jack Ma did that. He was the leader of it. I knew him. And uh, as soon as they start cracking down on Jack Ma and Pony Ma and all the people who are really uh, crucial to their success, they're, they're beginning to fail. And uh, so, so I, I, don't, I think to the extent they opened up, they prospered. And uh, because they started farther behind than any other country, they grew faster than any other country in the history of the world. And, and now they're... Uh, retrenching and uh, uh, 
adopting emergency totalitarianism and, and it ultimately can uh, bring them down. Well, you know, probably a subject for a different, for a different day, but I would argue that uh, they, you know, took advantage of the sort of the idea of free trade and openness while themselves pushing a, you know, dramatically mercantilist type policy. Yeah. But, but, but we, we benefit. Right. The result of this was that seven out of the top 10 most valuable companies on the face of the earth making profits at margins of 20, 30%, 40% rose up during that period. China was, was making margins of 4 and 5% on, uh, and most of their best companies did originate, many of them in uh, Taiwan anyway, which, uh, uh, but Foxconn was making all the uh, products for Apple, many Chinese companies, uh, contributed to Amazon's emergence, Microsoft uh, triumphed during this period. The, I mean, it, it, the whole idea that, that we were victims of China's free tra trade policy is just wrong. It's just not true. And we shouldn't give up on globalization and, and trade. That's our most powerful element. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to suppress Huawei for copying our standards, our platforms, our systems. Our, uh, they were plighting their troth to the future of American technology and all its specifications. And now we're forcing them to develop their own chips and develop their own platforms and standards. And, and the victims of this are, it helps communism because, because it means that they won't be dependent on us anymore. And, uh, but it doesn't help us. It reduces our markets drastically and, and actually is jeopardizing our greatest asset, which is our semiconductor industry. So I really don't accept I mean, I love the Epic Times, don't get me wrong, but, but you need to be a little more shrewd about figuring out how to deal with this, with this imperial threat that is arising in Asia. I don't deny it, but uh, isolating it and, uh, and, and pushing us toward an adversarial, really militarized confrontation strikes me as favoring communists. Communism is only good for war. That's the only thing it, it's good for. It's not any good for economics. It just uh, destroys any ec economy that it seriously attempts to organize. So I want to um, actually, I'm going to have to invite you back for a whole discussion about China, because I'm actually, I'm, I'm deeply interested in this. I would argue what you just said is precisely the reason why we have to, you know, cut off our ties, okay? I would argue, but I, I, there's something else I want to cover since we're sort of thinking about COVID. I would call it the mind virus, right? Yeah. Um, and so because of this globalism, right, because of this globalism, you mentioned earlier that somehow this very strange 
terrible, terrible lockdown or emergency Marxist, as you describe it, policy, it caught like wildfire. I mean, I mean, you could, you could call it a mind virus, and it was, it was sped up through this, but through the so so the same you know globalization that offers the you know the the, the transfer of information, instant transfer yeah. of information that actually facilitated everyone tossing their decent pandemic policies, which they had set for you know for decades, and adopting terrible, destructive policies, arguably you know. All, if not suicidal. destroying the world economy. Ultimately, it's suicidal. If right. we continue to lock down every time we have a flu crisis, we won't have a country anymore. Or, or, or yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole, I mean, communism seeks to reconstruct from the ground up the system, right? This, uh, you know, woke Marxism, which you alluded to earlier, that sees, it sees the Western, the whole Western idea, the enlightenment as the root of all evil. It must be destroyed from its from its foundations up right so somehow but this feel this feels to be an analogous by what we've been doing through these policies across the world without maybe even realizing it yeah, well I, th I think it's one of the great errors is the universities in the united states all of the professors really live in a dream world where they get tenure automatic support forever they live in a kind of Marxist utopia already. And uh, they imagine it's natural and that by extending it further in the society, they can actually uh, uh, prosper. And it's, it's a, a great disease. And I think it does begin with the intellectuals. Uh, it's really a, a astonishing to see, but uh, it's the... Uh, trahison des clercs, which was um, uh, the way in French depicts the treason of the intellectuals. And this is really a treason of the intellectuals going on in, in all the universities. Uh, and on the basis of this emergency model, the, the population is too big. There's a great new book that's just been published. I wrote the introduction to it. It's called Superabundance. It's by a professor at uh, St. Andrews in Scotland and a professor at BYU in Hawaii. Gail Pooley and Marion Tupi are the two authors. And it uh, demonstrates that over any period you want to uh, measure that uh, the prices, the real prices and the time that a worker has to spend to earn the money to buy uh, goods and services. Uh, the more people, the lower the prices. Uh, and since 1980, for example, uh, the population of the world has grown 75%. This is since uh, Paul Ehrlich was was predicting famine and collapse by 1995 or something, or the turn of the 20th century. And, um, but uh, during that period when human populations grew 75%, what happened to prices? Prices dropped 75%. With, in other words, prices dropped just as fast as uh, 
population grew. That meant each individual human being produced more resources than they, than they consumed. And that happens only under conditions of freedom. If you, if you crack down and lock down and mask and retreat to social distancing, you end up, uh, you, the population stops growing and resources become more scarce and prices start going up. And that's what we're, uh, we're experiencing today. And Brownstone Institute is fighting against. Mm -hmm. There's something I call the megaphone, okay? The megaphone is the ability in our network, highly networked system for multiple organizations, let's say media, social media, structures, in universities, government, NGOs, all to near simultaneously say the same thing, even if that thing is false. Yeah. Possibly even believing it, yeah. okay? Um, you know, uh, this uh, treason of the intellectuals, which I really actually want to even get you to qualify what the treason is against, but I'll get, to, I'll get you it's to do that. Against human life. Against they, human life. life. They, they, it's, it's the idea, it's what um, Bill Buckley used to call immanentizing the eschaton. The eschaton is final things, you know, the apocalypse, the end, the end times. And intellectuals tend to believe that their particular level of enlightenment and accomplishment is an eschaton, a final thing. They're saying we're giving value when in fact what they're offering is possibly the antithesis to the word value. I don't know what that is, lack of value. Um, but nonetheless, this has damage. the ability, damage, this has the ability to, to change policy across the world. Yeah. In well, an I wrote a book called Knowledge and Power. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is exercise of power against knowledge. Ultimately, human pro progress depends on liberating individual human minds. One human brain is measured by something called a connectome. Uh, MIT uh, a biologist wrote a book about connectomes and he showed how a single human brain has a connectome that would take 10 to the 21st of petabytes of uh, information to capture. And the the connectome of the entire global internet takes a few petabytes to uh, capture. But the global internet takes gigawatts, billions of watts of energy to sustain, while one human brain, which is as complex as the global internet, takes 12 to 14 watts to sustain at many billions of times less power than the global internet. It, uh, if economic growth and progress depends on liberating, emancipating individual human creativity. And that means liberating knowledge and, and uh, endowing people with knowledge with the power to pursue it. And, uh, 
the opposite is, uh, is uh, concentrating power and, uh, and a few people and thus eclipsing this vast potential of human minds that's unleashed as population grows. That's uh, an, kind of an amazing vision that this is just simply, you know, the concentrated power is the gross limiting of human potential and that's human right. endeavor. It's, it's somehow beautiful. And it's um, true. That's, yeah. it's, that's its beauty is its truth. <laughs> In other words, separating power from knowledge. And, and really rendering knowledge illegal, as they're trying to do in China and it, imitatively in the United States in this mimetic war of oppression that we're currently going through in the name of emergency socialism. It's just two weeks to flatten the curve, right? COVID is the mildest pandemic we've ever had, uh, essentially. and. And so it, for us to panic and abandon our whole constitution and uh, principles of living and, and don masks and hide in caves is, is just uh, is an evil movement. It just is. And that's why, uh, and it's deeply uh, false and it's, propositions. And that's why Brownstone Institute is rising up to battle the uh, troglodytes who, um, and zero COVID and zero CO2 and zero life. George, um, this is an absolutely fascinating discussion for me. Any final thoughts as we finish? Well, I'm delighted to to read the Epic Times. I think you're doing a tremendous job. I, for breakfast this morning, I had one of my rare mornings with the New York Times, and you should see today's Times. It's, it's, it's almost a parody of itself. It's got this whole long article about how Musk is ruining Twitter, and it is, that uh, somehow if you have freedom at Twitter, the world is going to come to an end. And, uh, and, he's, uh, and they've got this peculiar, st that, uh, the, another front page story is that Asians, the, the terrible threat of uh, Harvard's policy on Asians. And, but it's, but the, the whole, they, they really are trying to break down American society into ethnic groups which are transformed into kind of Marxian classes. And it's, it's really an evil and uh, making everybody a victim. They got the big story in the World Cup is, is that uh, not enough attention was played to the, paid to the black uh, uh, soccer players. I, don't, I mean, it's wonderful to have black soccer players, but but the idea that that that, that somehow in athletics, uh, blacks are being ignored is one of the is another. I mean, it's it's just you have to be in this strange, twisted 
mindset of the pre-epic times of New York Times in order to believe these these things, and that it's quite a quite a was it makes me very grateful for what you guys are doing. Is all I can tell you. Well, and maybe just tell me how is Epoch Times different in your mind? Well, it it's it, it it's really devoted to the t truth. It reports uh, truly on the world. It isn't twisted by some crazed ideology like the New York Times is, and and ma many of the other media are. It's uh, it uh, has a balanced view of real developments across the world. And you have some really good reporters. I, uh, uh, you know, did a really good piece on, uh, on COVID a couple days ago. Some, Zhang, is that her name? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, uh, Zhang. Yeah. Uh, she did an excellent job. And, and you know, they, they're just a lot better than the New York Times reporters. I mean, the good New York Times reporters are have left. They're going to, you know, the Alex Berenson's off doing his uh, Substack uh, blogs and um, Jim Brook, James Brook was a great international correspondent for the Times. He's left and he's writing for the New York Sun and the Berkshire Eagle and and they've, they've left with uh, ideologues, which is who had this peculiar, twisted view of the world, where everybody, all that matters are, are ethnicity and and skin color and you know it's it's uh, minds don't matter. The Epic Times has completely transcended this ideological trap that the mainstream media has eagerly entered. We're just finishing here, but just maybe a few words about your upcoming book, which I'm very excited to be reading. Well, it's, it's called Life After Capitalism, and it's a sort of an ambiguous title. Uh, on the one hand, I offer information theory as a way to redeem capitalism from a theory that reduces human beings to um, homo economicus, uh, responding to incentive systems of rewards and punishments. I think this is corrupting capitalism. So I want to transcend that model. So that's life after capitalism. But also it applies to this regime we have in the United States, which of ESG, you know, environmental, uh, social, uh, governance uh, rules, on uh, big corporations. So as Peter Thiel uh, declares in the past, when you went public as a company, you gained new influence and power and marketing ability and new capital and freedom. Now when you go public, you get nationalized and uh, you become a kind of uh, instrument of government policy. And, and this is this is life after capitalism, and it's a serious threat to our future. Well, well we're going to have you back uh, to talk about the book in, okay. in not too long. So, okay. George Gilder, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show.
I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining George Gilder and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.